Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. The current political media zeitgeist is, at best, a swamp, and at worst, a hellscape. Yes, Cass, we're starting there. Yeah, all right. A lot of my intros in this season is just... You're just like, (laughs) right into... Our people are going to stop listening because you're such a downer. I'm just joking. I mean, you just said it's a hellscape. That's not news, though. It is a hellscape. I'm sure both you and I know the seemingly endless list of culture wars that's going on at the moment. Yeah. Some of them are actual issues but hotly debated and some of them are completely ridiculous at the time of recording the culture war that's on my mind is i have several i have one go for it it's not something that happened super recently but it's like made its way back into memes and stuff which is it's around pronouns of course and there was a republican convention i don't remember which one but people were saying like my pronouns are usa or my pronouns or like kiss my or doesn't whatever. even make grammatical sense. I'm like that's not for, like why does it matter? Like it doesn't hurt you for somebody to have pronouns that you might not agree. Like what does it matter? It's so stupid. Yeah. But like the way they respond, I'm like, are you in kindergarten? My pronouns are kiss my even ass. Stupider. <laughs> So stupid. My pronouns are Big Mac and fries. That's concerning. Yeah, what are yours? <laughs> There's a lot of culture wars going on right now. Um, no, but no, have no, no. Talk- you didn't share any of yours. I shared mine. <laughs> okay. The culture war that's on my mind is the uh, DEI is why Boeing planes are failing. Have you heard of this? Oh, my God. That's so... It is, I saw that. It's awful. Yeah. It's awful. Boeing planes are failing because of DEI. I was like, I'm pretty sure they're failing because they're cutting costs and corners. Don't buck the industry titan, I guess. Anyway. Hey, you do know that my dad worked at Boeing for 30 plus years as a software engineer and my niece works. She is no longer there now. My niece works there now. Oh, God. And she works like she helps inspect parts, not on the, what is it, the 87 that had? No, 737 MAX. Is that the one that the door blew off? I believe so. I could be wrong. No, I thought it was one of the, the 737 MAX. I don't know. It's okay. the one that the door blew open. Yeah. My niece works on wings. <laughs> My niece the wings works are great. at Boeing on the wings of the plane. <laughs> on the wings? Yeah, the wings are fantastic. They lift the plane, they land the plane. Fantastic wings, 100% wings. Okay. I have a Boeing sweatshirt. Anyway. But blaming DEI is insane. Exactly. That's just absolutely ridiculous. Because it basically, the the argument they're making is that unqualified people who are not white are taking the jobs of qualified white people. Yeah, sounds very Which, like, fundamentally... (laughs) Yes, but also, like, fundamentally misunderstands the purpose of a diverse workforce. The point is, everyone has the skill, and rather than defaulting to giving it to white people, we make sure that there are a variety of backgrounds represented on our teams. DEI is not why the door plug blew out. We won't speculate on why the door flew off, but DEI is definitely not the reason. But yeah, so there's a lot of culture wars. We could go on for days, but that's not the point of this episode. But have we talked about something called the moral panic? We have. I believe it was in season one. Yes, it was. I forgot what we talked about, but we're going to revisit the moral panic. And just to be thorough, we're going to define it. A widespread feeling of often irrational fear that some evil person or thing threatens the value, interests, and well-being of a community or society 
often the dominant group in question. So we have multiple moral panics going on right now to varying degrees of severity. The wokeness moral panic is another one. And book bans. Yeah, book bans is another moral panic. It's like they banned the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in Florida somewhere. No idea how that works. If you don't read the popular information newsletter, you need to because he is documenting this and it's absolutely ridiculous. I also just got a great shirt. It says LeVar Burton says read banned books. Like it's a like reading rainbow style picture of LeVar Burton. To be fair, a lot of people say read banned books, but he is definitely a force of positivity. He's the reading rainbow guy and he has a great podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. So, you know, he's like a go-to person. Mm -hmm. Yes, read banned books for sure. Yeah, it manifests a lot of things. We have tons of moral panics going on right now. And the reason why I'm bringing up moral panics right now, as you'll see in a bit, is that it's almost always unjustified and a lot of times borders on conspiracy theory logic, right? A lot of times. But the point I want to make is that they have real impact. It's not just an emotional phenomenon like book bans. It's actually happening. Like the idea that books are corrupting our kids is not just an emotional response. They manifest as real life changes, often ridiculous changes like book bans in school libraries. And today we'll examine a moral panic in the past and its long, long impact. A little throwback to high school history, Cass. Tell me everything you know about McCarthyism. Okay, so this was during the Cold War between U.S. and Russia and concerns around communism. McCarthy was a senator, I believe, and he was convinced that we were being overtaken and infiltrated by communists. And he would say such, but he was also super careful. He only ever did it, if I'm recalling correctly, like on the floor of Congress where he could not be like he couldn't be prosecuted for libel because of where he was doing it. But he created this fear that your neighbors were commies, you know, fight the Reds, blah, blah, blah. Like everybody's a communist. Don't trust anyone, yada, yada. And really led to this, like, first of all, communism and communists by default are not like horribly evil people or a horribly evil concept. Like it often gets misused or Mm -hmm. abused. And and there are certainly some bad people, but it sort of demonized and made neighbors not trust neighbors. And that's what I remember. Yeah, it was a whole thing. We're not going to get into it, but basically it's the anti-communist wave sort of starts there. And uh, we're going to talk about the impact of that. So Cold War politics, ostensibly it was about anti-communism, but any serious historical scholars will tell you that it was not just about anti-USSR slash Chinese communist. It's more about, in many cases, suppressing, persecuting left-wing and liberal political ideas in general. In other words, it was a capitalist and conservative movement. It was not about Russian spies. It's not about like you know Chinese spies or whatever. Like it was, it was against left-wing politics in general. I won't get into the political philosophy of why it's inappropriate to compare USSR and Chinese communism to the theory of communism because that's a whole can of worms. But to this day, like the word communist is being misused. Like when people think communist, they think USSR Russia. They think Maoist China, which Again, a can of worms I'm not going to get into, but it's inappropriate to compare those two is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Right. But I regularly hear people who are more progressive in the in their political ideology being labeled as communist. Yes. You're a communist. You're you know, you just want to take everything away from everybody and redistribute it. And, you know, if not communist, then definitely socialist. Right. Like people just sort of throw this around with not when it's not actually anything related to either. political science is more complicated than that. But yeah, the point I'm trying to make is this anti-communist wave is not just about USSR and Chinese communism. It was about left wing 
right-wing politics in general. Yeah, and to put just a fine point on it, to scare people into doing what the people in power wanted them to do. This is what a moral panic is. So we're going to rewind to 1971. Congress, both houses, chambers, both chambers, just passed this thing called the Comprehensive Child Development Act. Cass, have you heard of this? Yes. Gears are turning. And I'm trying to remember what it is, and I'm trying to be careful, like, not to scroll too far. I don't want to cheat. Mm. (laughs) I'm assuming, based on the name, it obviously has something related to children. And I would guess it has something related to school, pre-K, childcare, like, something to support the development of kids, like, early before early childhood development, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing speaks for itself, right? right? It's a Comprehensive Child Development Act. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just said a lot of words. <laughs> it was just a total guess. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It made sense. Essentially, this act would create a federally funded public child care centers around the U.S., a daycare facilities, nighttime child care, psychological services, etc., established National Care Center for Child Development and Education under the new Office of Child Development, right? So the bill is very long, like all bills are, and they have different facets in different acts, whatever. It is not that radical because we already have public schools. Public school is a thing. So this is just like, well, we're just going to make public preschool, right? It's it's just a little extension of that. However, unlike public school, it is voluntary. Turancy laws would not apply to these pre-Ks. Um, so it's not mandatory, unlike school, which is technically legally mandatory. Right, which also means that there's going to be differential access. Correct. Because of if people aren't required to go, then why would you necessarily invest in a center in places where you could reach families that need it and you're going to put it somewhere where you could charge people for it instead of having something free? I love the way you think, Cass. This will come back in a bit. So surprise, topic within a topic. This episode is also about childcare and childcare crisis we're currently having in this country. Both of your children are out of childcare age range. Yes. But I'm assuming you've heard of the difficulties in finding childcare and raising children right now. Oh, absolutely. Like I know people like friends or in my social network have kids who are in this age or sort of recently had kids. And it is like you have to get on the wait list for some of these programs. Like the minute you're pregnant, you get on a wait list Correct. so that you can get your kids into these programs. Some of them are like the cost of a mortgage payment. Well, maybe not now because housing is always at least at least an (laughs) apartment rental, right? Like some of these places you are paying $1,200 for your kid to go to a pre-K, you know, daycare, childcare thing. It's 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 expensive. Yeah, for sure. And because it's so expensive to access not just any childcare, but sort of high quality childcare, this really is a public health issue because we talk a lot in this country about equal opportunity, that every child has access to a free education. And so therefore, ideally, we know we all have the same opportunity. Well, kids who come from families that can afford to send them to pre-K childcare that's going to help them be ready for school, that's different opportunity, right? You have access to different opportunities and that's going to mean you're prepared differently when you come into school. And that's just before, like before you're old enough to get to school, then we have summer camps and other enrichment activities that widen the gap between sort of educational achievement, educational attainment between different demographic groups, which is a public health concern. Like we need a well-educated populace 
And that starts at a young age. We need to make sure people have access to high quality education. And we certainly do not have equal opportunity or access. Yeah. And, you know, often people don't have the luxury of staying at home full time. In in this economy, both parents probably need to work and adults need to go back to work for money, unfortunately. And it's hard to do that when you have a child at home. Absolutely. And something that is particularly challenging for women or people who can become pregnant, they tend to be, and again, this is overgeneralization because they're certainly stay-at-home dads, but women or people who can become pregnant who are the sort of primary caregivers in most cases leave the workforce because they're like, well, why would I work when all the money I make is is literally just going to pay for, for childcare? The problem is when someone leaves the workforce to care for a child, regardless of the gender, you stop earning, right? And which means when you re-enter the workforce six years later, when your kids are now in school during the day, you are six years behind where you would have been otherwise. So it's not just, you know, okay, paying the cost of uh, childcare versus working. You now have set yourself back. You're not making contributions to retirement, Social Security, et cetera. And you're making it that much harder to sort of reestablish yourself in the workforce. So there's all sorts of research that says it's actually better to work, even if your entire salary goes to pay for childcare, because in the long run, you'll have better economic output. That was tangential to this, but no, just- no, I think that's a very important point that you're making and highlighting why childcare is a public health concern. And also it's better for the children's development to have the stimulation of quote unquote school, both intellectual stimulation and social stimulation. Social development is a very important part of child psychology and having pre-K, we have the evidence to show that it really helps with social development and therefore all other aspects of mental development as well. And right now, again, public health concern, because right now childcare is expensive expensive, as you have said. And obviously, when something is expensive in a capitalistic system, that means different people have different levels of access to this very important thing. Anyway, back to the moral panicking question. It is 1971, Cold War era politics. This bill passes both chambers of Congress, a feat in itself, lands on the desk of Richard Nixon, and he vetoes it. Shocker. Subsequent attempts to overrule the veto did not work as it required a supermajority, not just a majority. I believe that's two thirds, not just over half. We were so close to something revolutionary. And the reason of his veto You guessed it. Communism. It was too communist of an idea. He said it was too radical and had, quote, family weakening implications. I don't even want to get into what that means. Women have a place (laughs) in the home, MJ. Don't you know? Those women are ruining families and nuclear families and social structures by expecting to be able to contribute to the workforce and not just be in the kitchen. And clean the house. Spoken like a true 1970s man. Anyway, um, the Cold War anti-communist moral panic, an artifact of McCarthyism, because McCarthy at this point is not really active anymore, but, you know, it's an artifact of McCarthyism, made the lives of millions of children and parents harder because of this lack of access to a public pre-K. We already have public school. I cannot stress this is not that radical. Instead of public school, it is just public preschool. That's it. That was the whole idea. Yeah, it's just extending the structures that we already have to include younger children. And there was going to be a lot of infrastructure investment gone on one veto stroke of a pen, Nixon's pen. I don't want to give Nixon too much credit. His veto was under the relentless pressure from conservatives. It wasn't just his idea. I don't think he would have come up with this himself, to be honest, but it was under a lot of pressure from conservatives. The moment the bill was introduced, the same culture war and moral panic we see today happened back then. Conservatives said things like, it Sovietized our youths. 
again, conflating USSR's communism with actual. Which also, like, makes no sense unless you... Yeah, what does that even unless mean? Unless you are arguing <laughs> the entire free public education system is going to Sovietize the youth. You can't be supportive of free public schools for kids six and up, but opposed to childcare for kids younger than that because it would like you can't have one sovietize them and the other not like it's so stupid i reject the premise of the argument i was not alive in 1971 uh neither was i another thing that they said is your children will become the state's children again what does that even mean Uh, are you ready for this quote from nixon yeah let's let's hear it do you want to read it go for it quote from nixon why he vetoed the bill yes open quote For the federal government to plunge headlong financially into supporting child development would commit the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to child rearing over against the family-centered approach. Close quote. Nixon, also hard to grammar. Yes. Um, So that was what happened. We were so close to something good. And honestly, I think your point about, you know, being voluntary and it causing like differential access is valid. Like who knows? Maybe after this enacted, we're going to see the same issues. Like of course, probably. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah. We just need to be attentive to those issues so that we can address it or mitigate. We don't know because it didn't happen. It should have happened, but it didn't because Nixon decided to veto it at the pressure of the conservative side of the lobby. Remember how I said that this political movement is not just anti-communist, but deeply capitalist and conservative? Yes, I remember. The same year, 1971, the same year, a few months later, Nixon signed something called the 1971 Revenue Act, which championed private childcare arrangements using tax deduction. What do you think the problem with this is? (laughs) Well, like most things related to taxes, it's going to benefit upper middle class and middle class, upper middle class folks who are going to have more tax breaks available to them because that's what we do. Separately, having something that is public, meaning theoretically equality of access. Theoretically, right? right. When something is private, then you can be selective in who you admit into the program. So then you're going to potentially make it harder for people to access something that otherwise, if Nixon had not vetoed it, been a public good, right? We've talked a lot before about what should be a public good and what should be privatized. And clearly access to early childhood education should be a public good because it benefits everyone, except if you are among the elite and you want to keep people in their place, hold them down, then you don't want to give them those opportunities. Yeah. Even if implementation would have ran into issues, it's still a good thing to have because after you set up the structure, you can apply laws down the line to it. You could apply the civil rights law. If you see disproportionate child care centers in different neighborhoods, you can apply later laws like the Civil Rights Act to like, no, it needs to be, well, there's a term that they use, but you know, it needs to have, do you know what I mean? Like right. you can only fix something after the structure exists. If there's no structure and you're just like, yeah, we're just going to let private companies take care of it. What they're going to, they're going to maximize profit and they are not beholden to anything that a government public good would be beholden to. The government public good is beholden to the people to some degree. Anyway, so the thing was vetoed and we live in its vetoed reality today. I'm going to read something very sad now. This is how the bill that got vetoed, the Childhood Development Act, started. This is the first few lines of the bill. Comprehensive Child Development Act states the finding of Congress that, one, millions of children are suffering from lack of child development services. Two, comprehensive child development programs should be available to all children. Three, priority 
be given to preschool children with the greatest economic and social needs. Four, no mother may be forced to work in order for children to receive services. And five, such programs should be undertaken as a partnership of parents, community, and local government. This got axed. The thing that boggles my mind. Both houses of Congress passed this. Like Correct. I could not, a feat in itself. I could not imagine this passing today for all the reasons nope, that we've been talking about. But this was passed, and then the fact that it got vetoed, like it just, we were so it close. hurts my heart to think about where we could be. So here's a, here's a great bigger picture thing to think about. The U.S. is falling behind academically. Probably behind many things, yeah. Compared to many, many other countries. Right. But it's been happening for a while, but it's getting progressively worse. We are lagging behind. Had we put this in place in 1971, now I'm not saying that that magically would have kept us apace because our school years are way too short. We only go to school 180 days a year. Other places are in the 200s, right? Okay, fine. This is just one piece. But it would have been remarkable to see where we would have ended up had this not been vetoed Like, would we be as far lagged behind if we had put this into place? I would argue we wouldn't be because we would have, you know, there would still be a whole bunch of issues, right? This is not going to solve everything, but it could get really important services into areas that need it earlier so that kids can have uh, more opportunity. Truly sad. That's the word I could describe this. It's just a tragedy that this got struck down by a veto. Filled with other tragedies. Yes, yeah. yeah. This is not the only tragedy that happened. Well, I mean, the Nixon presidency was... Yeah. There were a whole bunch of problems. That This is a symptom of a larger problem, one would say. I would think the fact that Nixon had other issues sort of swept this under the rug. I feel like this otherwise would have been a huge political you know, stain on someone's career, but he had bigger stains to worry about. So yeah, like we see the effects of vetoing this today. The privatization approach to childcare, we're living through it right now. Childcare is a private thing. You pay thousands of dollars to send your kids to childcare. Childcare is not available in every neighborhood because under the rules of capitalism, why would it be available in every neighborhood? And people are struggling with childcare. And that is both have negative impact on parents as well as children. And it's sad. We're living through today. And this is a public health issue. So I want to end with this, though, because just reading that the start of that bill made me really sad. And I think it all comes back to this central idea of why is the idea that everyone should be well so controversial? We were at a time in America, we were able to think and imagine big things of like, yeah, like we should like to quote the bill, millions of children are suffering from lack of child development services. So we need to have these comprehensive programs should be available to all children. That language was once possible in Congress. Not anymore. That language is no longer possible in Congress. So why is the idea that everyone should be well so controversial? I mean, I mean, I know the answer, but capitalism. White supremacy. Two usual suspects. I mean, that's oversimplification, obviously, but we have concentrated power. It is even more concentrated now than it was 50 years ago, which it took me a second to say that because I was like, 1970s is not 50 years ago. It is actually. Um, Gosh, that is whack. Oh, anyway, we have even more concentration of power now than we did 50 years ago. And- We have a long history of 
elite groups wanting to stay in power because they see power as a limited resource. And the idea of losing power or having to share power is terrifying because then they might not stay elite. And so this is just another way that we have made it harder for people to move up the ladder. And when you have limited social and economic mobility, things are things are bound to not continue to improve because you have a limited set of perspectives at the top running the show. <sighs> That's depressing. Yeah, it is. Every time someone say like, oh, I'm anti-communist or anti-socialist, I'm like, are you actually anti-communist and anti-socialist? Do you just like not want good things to happen to everyone? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to a point that we said we weren't really going to dive into. Right. But if folks are interested, they really should go look. What is the difference between communist theory and socialist theory and One, what happens actually in practice in these places, and two, how people characterize what happens in those places, right? Because those are three very different things. And do we have really great examples of when communist theory and socialist theory have been used well in real life? Few and far between. I don't think so. But that's largely because you have human influence and people f*** up. Yeah, I think you can make a legitimate argument, legitimate critique, theoretical critique about what communism is good at or is not good at. There are legitimate theoretical critiques that you can make. My biggest pet peeve is when people point to Maoist China and USSR Russia as examples of communism. I need you to understand they're both dictators, dude. Like, right. <laughs> what are you doing? That's not the example to use. I'm not going to get into that political can of worms, but I don't want the idea that we should help everyone be controversial. And I think that's my sticking point. But it is controversial, MJ. I don't want it to be. That's the- right. But it is because we, as we've talked about so many times, we have a false notion that people are successful because of individual actions and that people are unsuccessful because of individual failings. And we ignore all of the context around people that make their success is possible. And we equally ignore all of the context around people that make success hard. We're like all the worst parts of an individualist society. <laughs> and we're going to end on that very depressing note. You're welcome. Unfortunately, it's okay. I was depressing throughout. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, please like the show. Hopefully you like the show. We're not always this dreary. I'll do a happy one next week. Uh, if you like the show, please share it with your friends, family, and acquaintances. That is the best thing you can do to help us tell everyone how awesome and ubiquitous public health is. Please follow us on Threads, Instagram, and Mastodon, all at Everything is Public Health. And also Blue Sky Social at Everything is PH. We are no longer using Twitter, X, whatever stupid thing you want to call it. You can find me on threads at CastPhD. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. It does help the show immensely. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or think we missed an important perspective, please reach out to us at everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. If you want to support the show directly, we have a Patreon page, which also acts like our website. Follow us there for all major updates and bonus material. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.